The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borey, Part 4, The 1900s, The Cognitive Movement. In the latter half of the 20th century, the advent of the computer and the way of thinking associated with it led to a new approach or orientation to psychology called the cognitive movement. Many are still hoping that it will prove to be the paradigm or the unifying theory that we have been waiting for. Although it's too early to tell, the significance of the cognitive psychology movement is impossible to deny. The roots of the cognitive movement are extremely varied, but it includes gestalt psychology, behaviorism, even humanism. And it has absorbed the ideas of E.C. Tolman, Albert Bandura, and George Kelly. It includes thinkers from linguistics, neuroscience, philosophy, and engineering. And it especially involves specialists in computer technology and the field of artificial intelligence. So let's start by looking at the work of three of the greatest information processing theorists, Norbert Weiner, Alan Turing, and Ludwig von Bertalanffy. Weiner. Norbert Weiner was born November 26, 1894, in Columbia, Missouri. His father was a professor of Slavic languages who wanted more than anything for his son to be a genius. Fortunately, young Norbert was up to the task. He got to reading by the age of three, started high school at age nine, graduated at age 11, got his bachelor's degree at age 14, and his master's from Harvard at age 17. He received his Ph.D., one year later, in 1913, with a dissertation on mathematical logic. Now, if it's any consolation, Norbert was also nearsighted, very nervous, clumsy, insecure, and socially inept. However, people liked him anyway. After his graduation, he went to Cambridge to study under Bertrand Russell, and then to the University of Göttingen to study under the famous mathematician David Hilbert. When Norbert Weiner returned to America, he taught at Columbia, Harvard, and Maine University. He spent a year as a staff writer for the Encyclopedia Americana and another year as a journalist for the Boston Herald. And, although a pacifist, he worked as a mathematician for the Army. Finally, in 1919, he became a professor of mathematics at MIT, where he would stay put until 1960. He began studying the movement of particles and quantum physics, which led him to develop an interest in the information transmission and control mechanisms. While working on those control mechanisms, he coined the term cybernetics from the Greek word for steersman to refer to any system that has a built-in correction mechanism, i.e. is self-steering. Appropriately, Viner worked on control mechanisms for the military during World War II. In 1948, he published Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. And in this book, he popularized such 
very frequently used terms as input, output, and feedback. Later, in 1964, he published the book God and Golem Incorporated, which he subtitled, A Comment on Certain Points Where Cybernetics Impinges on Religion. One of his greatest concerns was that one day machines might overtake us, their creators. Now, of course, that's a, a silly idea that, that our technology would become so much a part of and in control of our lives that we would be unable to function without it, that it, it might take on a life of its own. And yet, if you think about what would happen to you if you lost your technology, your cell phone, your laptop... Does it at all make you wonder how much technology has become part of our lives and what might happen? Do you worry about what could happen with the development of technology? Could it ever possibly take over control of human beings? Well, that was Viner's concern. And in 1964, he won the National Medal of Science. Only a few weeks later, on March 18, he died in Stockholm, Sweden. Now, this idea of feedback didn't just start with Norbert Weiner. The idea of feedback is very old. It's, it's hinted at, at the with the works of Aristotle. But feedback began to gain some notoriety in the 1700s in the form of the invisible hand, an idea that was introduced in Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, which some see as the roots of both control theory and game theory. Now, feedback is a simple idea. Take the output of some system, feed it back into the system as input, and in this way, alter the process. So for example, consider homeostasis or the thermostat principle as a form of negative feedback. If it gets cold in your house, it triggers the thermostat, which turns on the furnace. It gets warmer, which then triggers the thermostat, this time to turn off the furnace. Well, then it gets colder and the cycle begins again. Now, the goal of such a system is equilibrium. For instance, that it would be 70 degrees in the house. But it is actually an oscillating or hunting process. Actually, the feedback system is not that different from natural selection in which the organism which is best adapted to an environment is most likely to perpetuate itself within that environment. Or performance, feedback, revision. This is the way that you write a term paper or write a song. You start with a first draft, and then you read it to yourself out loud, and then you realize this needs to change. That could be better. This could be improved. You start with the little idea of a song, some lyric, some hook. You play it. You play it for someone else. You get feedback. You add. You improve. It gets better over time. So the feedback then allows you to improve or move forward or evolve. Now, of course, natural selection does not have as its goal the improving of the species. There is no intelligent design in the system. But among human beings, we can use this feedback system, this performance, feedback, revision, in order to improve ourselves because our human brains are a dynamic system.
Now, positive feedback occurs when the output tells the system to produce even more of something. Now, although the positive in positive feedback makes it sound like it's a good thing, if it's not backed up with negative feedback, positive feedback tends to run out of control. As a common example of positive feedback are economic bubbles, where something increases in value, such as tulips in the 17th century in Holland, or the dot-com bubble that occurred around the turn of the millennium, or more recently, the housing bubble that occurred in America. Everyone buys into the product, it drives up the prices, leading to more investors, until finally the whole thing collapses. But what Viner did was to recognize the larger significance of this feedback idea. Turing. Alan Turing was born June 23, 1912 in Paddington, London. His parents met while his father and his mother's father were serving in Madras, India as part of the civil service. Young Alan and his brother were both raised in other people's homes while his parents continued their life in India. A turning point came in his life when his best friend at Sherborne School, Christopher Markham, died in 1930. This led Alan Turing to think about the nature of existence and whether or not existence truly ends at death. Turing went to King's College of Cambridge in 1931, where he read books by von Neumann, Russell, and Whitehead. He also became involved in the pacifist movement at Cambridge as well as coming to terms with his homosexuality. He received his degree in 1934 and stayed on for a fellowship in 1935. The Turing machine, the first description of what would become the modern computer, was introduced in a 1936 paper, after which he left for Princeton in the United States. At Princeton, he received his Ph.D. in 1938 and then returned to King's College, living on his fellowship. In 1944, Alan Turing made his first mention of building a brain. And although Turing is best known for his work with mathematics, code breaking, and computing, I should also note that Turing was also an amateur cross-country runner and just missed representing the United Kingdom in the 1948 Olympics. But today, Alan Turing is best known for his work with British intelligence in breaking the famous Enigma code by constructing code-breaking machines. Now, the Enigma code and the Enigma machine were used by the Nazis during World War II. It was used to encrypt their communications so that even if the communications were intercepted, that the person reading them would not be able to interpret or understand them. Now, Alan Turing was not the first to actually break the Enigma code. That was first done by the Polish. However, their approach proved to be very complicated. But as a mathematician and logician, Alan Turing provided much of the original thinking that led to the design of machines that were able to reliably break the Enigma code. Turing's work allowed British code breakers to decrypt a large number of captured messages that had been originally encrypted using Enigma. The intelligence that was gathered using these messages that had been captured from the Nazis 
was called Ultra. In fact, after the war, Winston Churchill told King George VI that, quote, it was thanks to Ultra that we won the war. So in 1944, Alan Turing became the deputy director of the computing lab at Manchester University, where they were attempting to build the first true computer. In 1950, he published a paper called Computing Machinery and Intelligence in the journal Mind. Turing saw the human brain as what he called, quote, an unorganized machine that learned through experience. Now, of course, you might think at this point that Alan Turing, having a respected position, being essentially a war hero, would have been very highly respected in the United Kingdom. But unfortunately, he was arrested and put on trial in 1952. What did he do? Well, it wasn't what he did. It was who he was. He was tried for homosexuality. He was tried simply for being gay. At his trial, he made no defense, but he took an offer to stay out of jail if he could take estrogen injections. These female hormones would act as a sort of chemical castration that would lower his supposedly overactive libido. In fact, Turing even lost his security clearance because of his homosexuality as well. So Turing began working on pattern formation in biology what we would now call the mathematic of fractals. And he began additional work on quantum mechanics. However, on June 7, 1954, Alan Turing committed suicide by ingesting cyanide. He tried to make it look like an accident in order to spare his mother's feelings. He died at the age of 41. Now today, Alan Turing is considered the father of computer science. And let me read from his biography, written by Andrew Hodges, describing the famous Turing machine. His work introduced a concept of immense practical significance, the idea of the universal Turing machine. The concept of the Turing machine is much like that of the formula or the equation. There is an infinity of possible Turing machines, each corresponding to a different definite method or algorithm. But imagine, as Turing did, each particular algorithm written out as a set of instructions in a standard form. Then, the work of interpreting the instructions and carrying them out is itself a mechanical process, and so can be embodied in a particular Turing machine, namely the universal Turing machine. A universal Turing machine can be made to do what any other particular Turing machine would do by supplying it with the standard form describing that Turing machine. One machine for all possible tasks. It is hard now not to think of a Turing machine as a computer program and the mechanical task of interpreting and obeying the program as what the computer itself does. Thus, the universal Turing machine embodies the essential principle of the computer, a single machine which can be turned to any well-defined task by being supplied with the appropriate program. Additionally, the abstract universal Turing machine naturally exploits what was later seen as the stored program concept essential to the modern computer. 
It embodies the crucial 20th century insight that symbols representing instructions are no different in kind from symbols representing numbers. But computers, in this modern sense, did not exist in 1936. Turing created these concepts out of his mathematical imagination. Only nine years later would electronic technology be tried and tested sufficiently to make it practical to transfer the logic of his ideas into actual engineering. In the meanwhile, the idea lived only in his mind. Von Bertalanffy. Ludwig von Bertalanffy was born near Vienna on September 19, 1901. In 1918, he went to the University of Innsbruck and later transferred to the University of Vienna, where he studied the history of art, philosophy, and biology. He received his doctorate in 1926 with a Ph.D. dissertation on Gustav Fechner. In 1928, Bertolanffy published Modern Theories of Development, where he introduced the question of whether we could explain biology in purely physical terms. He suggested that we could, if we see living things as endowed with self-organizational dynamics. In 1937, he went to the University of Chicago, where he gave his first lecture on general systems theory, which he saw as a methodology for all sciences. In 1939, he became a professor at the University of Vienna and continued his research on the comparative physiology of growth. He summarized his work in the book Problems of Life, published in 1940. In 1949, he emigrated to Canada, where he began research on cancer, Soon, he branched into cognitive psychology, where he introduced a holistic epistemology that he contrasted with behaviorism. In 1960, he became professor of theoretical biology in the Department of Zoology and Psychology at the University of Alberta. And in 1967, he wrote Robots, Men, and Minds. In 1968, he wrote General Systems Theory. Ludwig von Bertalanffy died of a heart attack on June 12, 1972. Now, once upon a time, it was possible for one bright individual, say an Aristotle or a da Vinci, to know everything that his or her culture had to offer. We still sometimes refer to people who have a particularly broad knowledge base as a Renaissance man or a Renaissance woman. But this isn't really possible anymore, because there is simply too much information in the world. Everyone winds up a specialist. Now, of course, that isn't necessarily bad, but it does mean that the various sciences and the arts and the humanities all tend to become isolated. A new idea in one field stays in that field, even when it might mean a revolution for another field. The last time we saw a truly significant transfer of ideas from one science to other sciences was when Darwin introduced the theory of natural selection as the explanation for evolution. Now, 
Bertolonfi's general systems theory was a proposal for a mathematical and logical means of expressing ideas in what we nowadays comfortably call systems. He believed that this was the way that we could unify the sciences, including biology, history, sociology, and even psychology, and opened the door to a new kind of scientist who was a generalist rather than a specialist. These generalists, by making use of these common systems models, would be able to transfer insights from one field to another. Bertolanffy took concepts from cybernetics, information theory, game theory, decision theory, topology, factor analysis, systems engineering, operations research, and human engineering, and perfected the flow diagram idea, an idea that we all take for granted today. His most significant innovation, however, was the idea of the open system, a system in the context of a larger system. This idea allows systems theory to be applied to animals within ecosystems or to people within their psychosocial cultural contexts. In particular, the idea of the open system gave the age-old metaphor of societies as organisms scientific legitimacy and a new lease on life. Thank you.